I am greatly encouraged to see what the Lord is doing among you through the faithful gospel proclamation in this part of the city. I think you guys are doing a fantastic job. All glory and honor to our Lord Jesus. The saints at UCCD regularly pray for you, and I would be greatly amiss if I did not convey how much you mean to us. Um, we love you and pray that you would not be ashamed of the gospel, but, you, but that you would proclaim it with boldness and with great joy, being confident that salvation belongs to our sovereign Lord. So please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Some of you might find this disturbing, but it is meant to be so. Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 30. Listen to the word of God. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray. Father, we ask you for the renewing of our minds according to the riches of your grace in Jesus. We pray, O oh Lord, that your people would know the immeasurable power of your gospel. Teach us, O oh Lord, what it means to walk in the light, to live according to your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. It was just another day of drug abuse for Michael Lassiter. Lassiter had been injecting cocaine into his bloodstream in a mortal room when he suddenly realized he might have accidentally injected air into his veins, which could lead to his death. So Lassiter reasoned that cutting off his arm was the only way to save his life. So he ran into a nearby restaurant and grabbed a butter knife, of all things, from a customer's table. Lassiter then started using the butter knife to stab himself repeatedly in the right arm near the biceps. When that didn't work, and his arm remained in place, he ran into the kitchen, grabbed a butcher knife, and started sawing frantically at his limb. Police rushed into the restaurant and tried to stop him, but he carried on trying to sever his right arm right in front of them. One police official said, I have never seen anything like that before. He disregarded a substantial number of commands and continued to stab himself. Now, how would you react if you saw something like this unfold before your eyes? 
I don't know about you, but when I read this news report, the question that I asked myself was, what could possibly happen in the mind of a man that, he, that would move him from a stage where he is self-indulgent in cocaine to a point where he is willing to do the unimaginable to save his life? The very thought of self-mutilation, inflicting physical pain on ourselves in this manner seems unimaginable. Gut-wrenching, brutally violent, even desperate. And yet, we see this kind of language on the lips of our Lord as He commands what seems on the surface to be something very similar. Why does Jesus tell us to do this? How did we get from the babe in Bethlehem to the man who commands self-mutilation? Well, I want to suggest that it all begins with knowing who Jesus is. So Matthew in his gospel goes to great lengths to lay out the genealogy of Jesus, to tell us who he is and to present him as Israel's Messiah, that great son of David, the promised seed of Abraham who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the prophets had spoken about. So Matthew tells us that Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance. And one day, seeing the great crowds that followed him, he went up and sat down on a mountain. So his disciples came to him and Matthew tells us that Jesus opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In his discourse that we have come to call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began to explain the implications of gospel living, that very gospel of the kingdom that he had been proclaiming. And as he did that with all authority, well, the crowds were astonished. Because the values of the kingdom, the outworking of God's saving reign as it was displayed and commended by Jesus, well, they were outrageous, even scandalous. The kingdom of heaven was for those who were poor in spirit. Divine comfort under God's saving reign would be available for those who would weep and mourn. The great reward in heaven would be, those, would be for those who would be persecuted. And so on and on he went to expound some things that were very hard to understand. Very hard to swallow. Because in a very real sense, it seemed that this was not how the world operated normally. Or so it might have seemed to those who were hearing him then. And so in our text this morning, Jesus talks about adultery to his disciples. And he tells us three things. So if you look at the text closely, you will find three things. First, he recalls a holy prohibition. Then he tells us about a horrible predicament. And finally, he gives us a hard prescription. 
So if you're taking notes this morning, those are the points of the sermon. First, a holy prohibition, a horrible predicament, and finally, a hard prescription. And what is that prohibition? We'll look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now we know that the command not to commit adultery comes from the law of Moses, specifically the, the seventh commandment. You can find that in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Well, this prohibition is holy because of the one who gave it. The God who had redeemed his people, Israel, out of slavery. He, br he brought them to Mount Sinai where he spoke to them from the mountain out of the fire. This was the God who gave the commandments. He graciously gave them his law, which was a reflection of his holy character. It was a picture of his perfections. This was the very word of God himself. This was what was taught by the teachers of the law in that day. And this was what the people had heard. But have you ever wondered why God said that? I mean, why does God prohibit adultery? Why does God forbid us to have sex with someone other than our own spouses? Friends, in order to understand adultery, you must first understand the covenant of marriage. You see, marriage was God's idea. God intended marriage to be a covenant between one man and one woman. And for this reason, God said in Genesis 2, 24, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God gave us the good gift of sex to be enjoyed within the context of marriage, within the context of a covenant union between a man and his wife, in the context of uniquely knowing one another. Sexual union is meant to, to consummate the total spiritual communion of marriage. The union of, between a husband and a wife is also intended to exemplify the exclusive relationship that God has with his people. God chooses his people. He knows them. He loves them. He enters into a covenant with them. There is something so transcendent about our sexuality. Why even in the Old Testament, God compared his relationship with his people as a romance between a husband and a wife. And so when his people were unfaithful to him, well, the Bible tells us that they were guilty of committing spiritual adultery. The Apostle Paul tells us much later in Ephesians 5.32 that the reason God instituted this wonderful creation ordinance was to put on display the redeeming love of Jesus Christ for his bride the church. So precious is marriage. Is it any wonder that the New Testament commands husbands and wives to freely give of themselves to one another in this way? But when sex is taken out of the context of marriage, when people try and isolate the pleasures of sex, well, the results are catastrophic. And so when you hear the words, do not commit adultery, you should hear three things. One, that sex is for marriage and for marriage only. Two, 
marriage must be seen as a relationship of lifelong fidelity or faithfulness. And three, that other people's marriages must not be interfered with by sexual intrusion. Therefore, when you commit adultery or infidelity, a term appropriately chosen, when you break trust, when you break covenant, well, you communicate a detestable and an abominable lie about a faithful covenant-keeping God through your actions. That's what you do. And make no mistake, my friends, it is a sin that a holy covenant-keeping God does not take lightly. The Bible confirms this by making the penalty for adultery so severe. Leviticus 20.10 says this, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. To commit adultery is not only a sin against your spouse, but also an assault on the character of the emperor of the universe, against God himself. And therefore it is a sin justly punishable by death. Now at this point, there are some who would say or feel relieved. They might say things like, wow, I'm so glad that's not me. Because I'm really a nice guy. I don't cheat on my wife. I pay my bills. I don't gamble. At least I'm not like that guy who I know sleeps around with other women. Well, my friend, you are in for a rude shock. Because listen carefully now. Jesus says that having sex is not the only way to commit adultery. Jesus proceeds to tell us something more shocking. Like Moses, he too is on a mountain and authoritatively gives us his word as the very word of God. Did you see that? You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He gets to the very heart of adultery and holds out our predicament before our eyes. And it is a horrible predicament. We all find ourselves in that. Look at verse 27 and 28 again. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Most people, when they come to this verse, when they read it, they think that Jesus is coming up with something new a new ideal, a tougher rule to follow, perhaps. But that's not what he's doing. No, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 5, 17, that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. What he does do is authoritatively tell us that the Ten Commandments are not just concerned with the external act, but with the internal attitude as well. So Jesus rightly interprets the seventh commandment for us. And who better to interpret the law than the lawgiver himself? Who better to explain the character of God than the one who is the express image of his being? And so in doing this, Jesus indicts us all by saying 
that to have looked at a woman lustfully is to have already committed adultery with her in your heart. In other words, a mind that strongly desires to have sex with someone who is not your spouse is, in God's mind, to have committed the act already. Now, this word that is translated lustfully in your English Bibles simply means to have a strong desire that is focused on satisfaction or attaining what is desired. If it is used in a good sense, then it is translated quite frequently as earnestly desired or greatly desired or simply desired. But when it is used negatively, it's usually termed as evil desire or lust. Now, if you're really paying attention, then you should hear a slimy, slithering, hissing sound saying, no, Jesus didn't mean that. Lusting is adultery in the heart. I mean, who came up with that? Did God really say? Well, my friends, let me tell you that God is concerned about your thoughts as well. Why God prohibited lust even in the Old Testament. Do you remember that passage that Dave read for us from the book of Proverbs? What does the father say to the son in Proverbs 6.25 about the adulteress? Do not lust in your heart after her beauty. Why, even the Ten Commandments themselves show us the high and lofty righteousness of God. They show us that the commandments speak not only to the external act, but to the internal attitude as well. Take the Tenth Commandment, for example. What does it say? You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And what does that word covet mean? Greatly desire. In other words, don't lust after your neighbor's wife. Or have you not carefully read why Eve ate of the fruit in the garden? Genesis 3, 6 tells us because it was a delight to the eyes. And get this, greatly desirable to make one wise. Lust. This is a sin that we are all too familiar with, aren't we? Let me address you men. Some of you don't like to admit this. If I was somehow able to connect, hook up your thoughts to the screen behind me here, just for 24 hours, what would we see? Would we see all that is honorable and pure and commendable? Or would we see illicit images of acts so crude that it would leave us at a loss for words to define what we see? Does the mere possibility of someone being able to view your thoughts frighten you to death, my friends? But there is one who sees. Brothers, we are prohibited by a holy God to lust. If the only context for sex is marriage, then don't you see that this forbids not only adultery, but premarital sex, fornication, pornography, homosexuality, and every other kind of sexual immorality? 
Oh friends, your lustful thought will defile you long before you actually commit the act. Because every evil deed proceeds from your heart. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 to 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, sensuality. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. To lust is to look at a woman or a man and imagine the sexual possibilities. It is to conjure in your mind sexual imagery that has you and this other person engaged in acts of fornication or sex. And when you have done that, you've done two things. One, you have viewed this person created in God's image as an object to satisfy your evil desires. And two, in giving in to lust and indulging in self-gratification with disregard to God and man, you know what you've done? Well, you've worshipped yourself. But this kind of giving in to temptation doesn't happen all of a sudden. You first look, then you look again, and then you linger. And soon you will find yourself in situations that you should not be in. It will happen subtly, deceitfully. You see, lust sells you a lie. A promise of pleasure and satisfaction that will let you down and leave you wanting more. That's how it happens. And men... For you, this begins with visual stimuli, something that you see that leads to sexual arousal. Ladies, for you, this begins with emotional attachment, dependency, relationships that you shouldn't have. But here's something that I want you to understand. We live in a world that breeds covetousness and lust. There is a whole industry dedicated to feeding the lust of the flesh. Pornography sells you a lie by showing you images of perfectly willing, perfectly aroused people who promise to satisfy you without the commitment of a relationship, without grumbling or complaining. That is a lie. That is a diabolical lie. You may feed yourself on an endless supply of images on the internet, Engage in acts of self-gratification as you dehumanize men and women in your thought life. But my friend, you will find yourself sitting at a banquet in the grave. One author says, if sin were only like sticking a fork in an electrical outlet, I would have no problem. But sin comes in pleasurable, delectable forms that appeal to my basest lusts. The reason it woos me is because I want to be wooed by it. No one is enticed by a lover he does not want to love. No sin courts me and its silky smooth sounds resonate in my sinful ears. Every member of my body joins in the beguilement. My eyes love to gaze upon that which I should not study. 
My ears long to listen to that which I should not heed. My hands enjoy caressing that which I should not touch. My tongue lisps things I dare not utter. And my feet are swift to take me to desire's destination. Well, friends, don't you see that we happily go to the slaughterhouse precisely because it's so pleasurable? Several years ago, Leadership Magazine carried an article about the way an Eskimo kills a wolf, which is pertinent to the way that we think about this. First, get this, an Eskimo, he coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds several more layers to the, of frozen blood until the blade is totally concealed. Next, he puts the knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his nose and finds the bait, well, he starts to lick it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster with much more gusto, lapping at the blade until the sharp edge is bare. But now he is feverishly licking harder and harder, his craving so intense that the wolf does not notice the sting of the cold bare blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the moment when his unquenchable thirst is being satisfied with his own warm blood. He craves more and more and more and more until he's found dead in the snow the next morning. This is what your lust will do to you. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? There are consequences to this sin. But the consequences of lust go way beyond addiction or adultery, way beyond an unwanted pregnancy or AIDS, way beyond strained relationships or even a criminal conviction. No, your lust invokes the very wrath of God. A blatant disregard of God and a failure to worship Him will cause Him to hand you over to your own lusts and impurity. He will let you lick that cold blade harder and harder until one day you will find yourself suffering the eternal fires of hell. James tells us in James 1, 14 and 15 that each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. The scripture tells us that neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. You see, eyes that are glazed with lust cannot see impending danger. The young man who lacks sense in Proverbs chapter 7 is led by his lust, unaware of the danger ahead. Listen to Proverbs 7, 23 and 24. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know 
that it will cost him his life. You may think you are satisfying your lust, but you are being hunted down. That enticing, luscious, blood-coated blade will be the end of you. Now, if the law of God demands this from us, then we are all doomed for each one of us has broken this commandment either in its act or in our thoughts. The predicament we find ourselves is not only horrible, but also hell-bound. But Jesus gives us a prescription. But it is a hard one. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus says, if parts of your body lead you or cause you to sin, then you must get rid of them. I want you to see that this is violent language here. He's talking about gouging out your eye, that part of your face with which you see. He wants you to inflict such harsh, painful, a, a bloody dismemberment and, and, and throw it away. Your eye, that part of your body that you need, your right hand, the most important one, something that you use so often, it will leave you disabled. And yet he wants you to cut it off and throw it away. Makes you wonder whether there's no alternative. You know, can I not fix it, treat it, medicate it? I mean, cut it off and throw it away? Mark in his gospel, he adds this. He says, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. You know, on one hand, Jesus' solution to sin doesn't seem bright at all, doesn't it? Does it? I mean, think about it. If you pluck out your right eye, can you not check out women with your left? Can you not do and touch what you're not supposed to do with your left hand? Of course you can, but that's precisely the point. We are talking about lusting in the heart, illicit thoughts and images. No, Jesus does not mean we should literally self-mutilate ourselves. This is hyperbolic language used to convey how one really feels about the situation. What Jesus means is that we ought to rid ourselves of anything we see, do, or even go to that can feed the lust of our flesh and cause us to fall into sin. But here's the most important question that you must ask yourself as you read this passage. Why is this a hard saying? Is it a hard saying because it's difficult to do? Perhaps. Is it hard because we don't want to do it? Well, that certainly might be true. But I want to suggest that it is difficult to do because it is hard to believe that sin can be so deadly. What kind of change should occur in your mind that should cause you to want to do such a radical thing? And the answer to that question lies with the person and work of Jesus. 
So how does Jesus get us to see the deadliness of sin? The biggest mistake that you can do is to try and make sense of this passage as though it somehow stands alone. Matthew never intended this to be understood apart from his whole gospel, the entire story. Well, for one thing, it doesn't say anything about the cross and the resurrection in this passage, does it? No, my friends, this is something that needs to be understood in light of the gospel. The passage loses its meaning apart from the whole. The Bible is clear that it is not within our power to obey God and thus avoid his just condemnation. Paul tells us that that the sinful mind is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. We are not only unable, but blind to our predicament. We are told in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Therefore, those who do not know God in a saving way cannot see the seriousness of lust, nor do anything about it. Paul told the Thessalonian Christians that they should avoid sexual immorality and learn how to control their bodies in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And so... We must understand this passage in light of the completed saving work of Jesus. While Matthew tells us in the beginning that that Jesus is the one who will save his people from their sins, he also tells us in the end how he actually accomplished that. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, perfectly obeyed God's law, and he went to the cross and died for sinners, including adulterers, including the sexually immoral. He died in their place, paid the punishment that was due them, absorbed the Father's wrath, and He rose again so that all those who repent of their sins and believe in Him may have eternal life. New life. He gives us His Spirit that cures your blindness and causes you to see with new eyes. He gives you a hatred for all that God hates and a love for all that God loves. He gives you a new heart to see the horror of your sin and the hopelessness of your life without a savior. That's how sinners who love their sin, who are blind to the deadliness of their sin and the beauty of Christ can truly and finally see. This is the good news, my friends. This is the gospel. So this morning, if you are here and you are not a Christian, well, oh friend, let me plead with you. Turn away from your sin. Repent of your adultery, your sexual immorality, your disregard for your Creator, and turn to Jesus. He saves the lustful. He saves the ungodly. He saves the immoral, the addicted. And He gives you new life. And he promises you victory over your sin through the power of his spirit. What causes a sinner to turn from self-seeking pleasure to a desperate abandonment of all that he holds dear? The answer, eternal life made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
new eyes, new affections, new tastes, new life. Jesus said that no one can see the kingdom of God unless one is born again. And those who see it and embrace it, well, they will look very strange to this sin-soaked world. So turn to Christ, my friends, and have life and have it in abundance. If you are a Christian, then what does this say to you? Well, I want to suggest that this hard prescription tells us three things. One, it tells us that the fires of lust are so fierce and ruthless that it needs to be dealt with severely and with great urgency. Know that this sin is deceitful and will corrupt your soul like gangrene. It will not stop until it has all of you. Why the sheer animal force of of temptation ought to remind us about the nature of our own sin and the power of darkness. Paul tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we can have hope. Do you know why? Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way. Every way. Just as we are yet without sin. So we can find mercy and grace in time of our need. Isn't that good news? So humble yourselves before this God. Confess your sin. Bring it to light. Go and speak to one of the elders of this church if you're struggling with this. Brothers, listen to me. Sin breeds in darkness. Bring it to the light. Confess it. Starve it. Kill it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Come to a place in your life where you hate and grieve over your sin because it is an offense to God. First and foremost, Puritan Thomas Watson once said, we are to find as much bitterness in weeping for sin as we ever found sweetness in committing it. Friends, you only need to look at the violent death of the Son of God on that cross to see the ugliness of your own sin. So bring your lust to the gospel. Not just for relief and forgiveness, but for further conviction of its guilt. Look on him whom you have pierced and be in bitterness. Say to your soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled on? Is this the return that I make to the Father for his love? To the Son for his blood? To the Spirit for his grace? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash, that blessed spirit has chosen to dwell in? Do I think so little of my master that for this vile lust's sake I have hardly left any room for him in my heart? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The second thing that this hard prescription tells us 
is that in our battle against lust, we ought to have a violent wartime mentality against lust and everything that leads up to it. Did you see that in the verse? If your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. You will do spiritually fine without it. If your computer is the seed bed where your lust is cultivated, throw it away. You'll be fine without it. If there are plenty of immodestly dressed women at a particular mall, brothers, don't go there. Your soul is more important than that sale. Find out all that you need to know about your pattern of sin and everything leading up to it and then get rid of it. Make no provision for the flesh. You may need to cut out TV, movies and even certain routes of travel. You may need to graciously cut out certain people out of your life. You may need to move. You may need to change jobs. It is better says Jesus. Make yourself accountable to your own wife if you're married or another godly person in the church to spur you on to godliness. You see, this is much is as much a corporate fight as it is an individual fight. And finally, the third thing that this hard prescription tells us is that eternity is at stake in this battle against lust. Jesus says, it is better for you to do this than to be thrown into hell. Brother, if you're not fighting lust like this, you ought to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. You see, Christians are called to fight and put to death all that is earthly in them precisely because of who they are in Christ. Christ has broken the power of sin over your life. And has conquered it so that now you may have victory over your sin. You now have the power to say no. Ladies, have you considered that this is a glorious gospel reason to dress modestly and lovingly serve your brothers in Christ who are co-heirs with you in this gospel of grace? So if Christ is precious to you, if God is your delight, then take up your arms. Put on the full armor of God that you may do battle against the enemy and your sin. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We are soldiers on a battlefield. That's who Christians are. We are not children on a playground. This is not a game. Your eternity is at stake. Every soldier fights to stay alive, finish the battle, and go home. That's all he wants. That's what every soldier wants. Stay alive, fight it out, go home. Do you long for that? You see, Christ has decisively won the war, and he will not leave any of his men behind. So onward, Christian soldiers, look around you. You do not fight alone. Use the means of grace, the weapons of spiritual warfare that the Lord has given you. Here are some ways how you can do that. Cultivate a passion for God through the daily meditation of His Word. 
Fill your heart with new affections and push out evil and deceitful desires. Make a list of of loving and righteous thoughts to think of when lustful thoughts come your way. Deny yourself and serve others in the church. Don't be idle. Young people, especially you, don't be idle. Write out a prayer that you can pray when the battle is raging in your mind. If you don't know how to fight lust, well then join the local church. Join this church. The local church is a place where Christians take up arms against their sin together. Commit to putting to death your sin. Ask a seasoned saint in this room who has been fighting the battle for years and learn from them how to battle lust. Read good books on this. You have a wonderful book table. Speak to one of the elders. Tell them, hey, I'm struggling with this. What can I read? And don't come up and tell me, you know, I'm not the reading type. Your eternity is at stake. So pick up and read. Young people, you should pick up your Bible. Pick up your Bibles and read. Your life depends on it. Michael Lasseter, you remember Michael? A self-serving, unbelieving man was willing to cut off his arm to save himself from impending physical death. What will you do to save your soul from eternal hellfire? Let us pray. Father, I pray that your people may know resurrection power. I pray that they would not underestimate the power of the gospel in their battle against lust. Cause your people to be a sin-killing, Christ-treasuring people. Give them abundant grace for this. And Lord, we long for the day when Christ will come and the fight will be over. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Amen.